Welcome to the Arendt We Are Live podcast number four. My name's Jim Kent and today we are looking at the golden rules for successful M&A in the financial sector. Now M&A is a topic that affects us all, whether as shareholder, advisor, buyer, seller or employee. The past years have brought together a combination of factors that include low interest rates, increasing activity and increasing competition, placing pressure on margins. Now these have combined with higher regulatory pressure and therefore increasing costs of compliance. There is thus a certain pressure to consolidate many structures of existing financial groups on the one hand and to grow by acquisition for businesses to benefit from economies of scale as larger institutions can more easily absorb costs generated by regulation. Now, in addition, following the pandemic, there is increased public and private capital available, suggesting that both individuals and fund managers will be looking for returns and growth opportunities. Now, the financial sector is especially susceptible to M&A. They they are typically stable businesses with sticky clients and recurring revenues. This means that Luxembourg, with its well-developed fund and banking sector, is no stranger to M&A news. Now, what about the human experience? For anyone that's been involved in an M&A, they will know that it can be a fraught and frustrating experience both from a regulatory and contractual perspective, as these are exceptional transactions and not part of their daily business. So what steps can be taken to ensure that both buyer and seller leave the table satisfied? Meanwhile, almost all acquisitions trigger reorganisations, and reorganisations are also common nowadays, independently of an acquisition. What plans can be put in place to minimise disruption for employees, clients and shareholders? Over the next hour, we will hear about how to prepare for the transaction or reorganisation, the process of gaining regulatory approval and taking other steps required from a regulatory perspective, negotiating and closing the deal with a solid contractual package and ensuring that you achieve the result you wished for at the start of your M&A journey. Now, I've been joined by two speakers from Arendt here today. On my left-hand side, we've got the corporate partner, specialist in M&A, private equity, real estate, and capital markets, Lauren Schumer. Lauren, good afternoon. Good afternoon. And seated on your left-hand side, we have the banking and regulatory partner, Mark Mouton. Mark, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Now, Laurent, I'm going to start with you. What is your perspective and role when advising clients? Well, M&A is like dancing a tango. Tango means you need to have two who want to do something together. Either you need to do something with your client who is doing an internal reorganization, or you need to do a buyer and a seller who want to do something. So it always takes two or several parties to do something, and you need to do and know the rules. Knowing the rules means that I help the client prepare for dancing the dance in a very pragmatic approach. You have to be very pragmatic down to earth. You need to identify the problems that are on the table, see how you can solve them, what are the aims of each party, and then develop a strategy to get there uh, and dance the dance. So there's a lot of cooperation involved here, actually. Yes, cooperation is is, is key and exchange is key, uh, even with the opposing party. Excellent. Uh, Mark, what about you? Um, we know that you're an expert in regulatory affairs, but why is this just so important for M&A? Yes, regulatory aspects have become really important because it has been 
become a, a key driver for the timing of the transaction, actually, because um, it is a necessary condition in financial sector M&A for the transaction to proceed. There are often several approvals uh, required, so it's not only one uh, approval to be obtained. And uh, the relevant filings have become very complex nowadays. So, and, and they may involve uh, several entities, a lot of documents, a lot of um, information to be to be produced and, and, and handed to the regulator. So uh, it, it has really become, um, let's say, a key aspect that can take several months uh, before being able to, to close a transaction. So uh, it is in this sense, it has become a key driver. And then obviously also, uh, I would say, uh, since we are talking about M&A in the financial sector, if you you know do your due diligence on your target, obviously you want to make sure that uh, it is um, fully up to speed and, and compliant with all relevant rules like AML rules, MIFID rules and so forth uh, to make sure that what you buy uh, does not cause you problems later on. So I think also, um, as also on the regulatory part, uh, preparation, is key and, and you have to, to plan ahead. So. Now, interesting you say that preparation is key. Laurent, from your perspective, what, what factors should a buyer consider when preparing to make an acquisition? Well, I think one of the most important considerations is what does the buyer want to do? What does the seller want to do? What's the, the aim they want to achieve? Uh, that results in just a question is what type of transaction do you want to do? Um, the M&A contains two elements, it's mergers and acquisitions. Uh, and uh, there's a reason why there are two things. In the sense of, are you doing a transaction where you do kind of a merger-like structure, where you merge entities, where you reorganize these entities by a type of combination of companies, uh, which follows certain legal proceedings, which can be governed by corporate law, or can be governed uh, by other considerations? Or are you doing just an acquisition? So you, you do not dance the tango together for the rest of your life, but you just take a bit and acquire a bit from one of the parties. And I think that is very important. So are we speaking about merging, getting businesses together, getting businesses combined, resulting in a joint venture, which is a completely different deal than if we say somebody does an acquisition? Because the reasoning is simple. The buyer says, I'll transfer you this asset and buy. I'm not responsible for the asset anymore. I do not have to take care of it, which is a completely different perspective than if you're in a merger type perspective. So I think it's important to make the distinction between the M and the A in the transaction. And by the way, we are talking here about acquisitions. A lot of clients in the financial sector are doing also internal consolidation or internal reorganizations. We've seen it in Brexit. A lot of insurance companies had to leave the UK market. They did that through using the techniques of M&A to get into Luxembourg. Or financial organizations, because of regulatory requirements, capital requirements, do have to reorganize. The subsidiary becomes a branch. You use exactly the same techniques than you use when you do an acquisition transaction with another party. So I think that's the first thing you need to say. What type of transaction do I go for? Um, if you do then a sales transaction, so you're not in a combination, but you're really selling an asset, the summa diviso is, of course, do I do a share deal? Do I do an asset deal? Uh, the share deal is completely different from an asset deal, and you need to know what you do. If I do the share deal, then, of course, you sell the whole company. 
you sell all the assets or liabilities that are with it. You sell all the employees that are within it. We'll later have a, a discussion about the employment law aspects of it. But the whole thing goes. You're selling the shares. There's no picking and choosing to be made. That puts the buyer into the situation that he needs to really know what he's getting. He's getting everything, so he needs to do substantive due diligence on, on the target in order to, to uh, make sure that he acquires what he wants to acquire. Uh, and that puts a lot of burden on the acquirer. If you're in an asset deal, that's a different situation. In an asset deal, you pick and choose what you transfer. That means that the seller needs to determine very quickly, what do I want to get rid of? What am I willing to give to the other uh, party in that transaction? Are there things that I need to keep back? Or, to be honest, are there things that I want the other party to get because I'm going to want to get rid of that sort of business? I want to get rid of dormant client accounts. I want to get rid of certain IT programs that I need to transfer to, to go with that business. The buyer, he has the impression that he can choose, but at the end of the day, it's always you have a bride that is presented to you. There's so much you can do about the bride and change about the bride, but again, you need to find yourself. And that's where my it takes two to dance the tango is. It takes two to agree on what are we buying and selling. In an asset deal, there is another complication. In an asset deal, there is another summa diviso. So there are two summa divisus here. It's share deal versus asset deal. And in the asset deal, it's also a question of, do I transfer the assets on an individual basis according to uh, every asset that I'm transferring? I'm complying with the rules to transfer each asset individually, which in the financial sector means very clearly I need to transfer each client individually. That is a different impact than if you have if a possibility of transferring the clients in a universal automatic transfer. What I'm saying here is if you transfer in an asset deal or singularly as we call it one by one, you need to get client consent, you need to do a more proactive commercial approach. If you use one of the commercial corporate law mechanics which allow you a merger-like transfer of assets which Luxembourg law allows, then you can have an automatic transfer of assets that you have identified, you need to follow a certain number of corporate rules. But here again, there are the subtleties. If I do the asset deal because I want to know what I transfer, you go for the transfer asset by asset, you really know what you transfer, but you have to get consent. If you transfer something under an automatic transfer, then the law kind of says, well, you transfer assets and the related liabilities. So you might end up getting things that you do not want to have as a buyer. And these are the fundamental discussions you need to have. What is the transaction that I'm doing? Am I combining myself, merging myself with another party because we're doing a joint venture or we're going to do something together? We're going to dance the tango on a continuing basis, which is more a merger type transaction, or is it an acquisition disposal? Somebody gets rid of something, somebody acquires something, which is a completely different perspective. And then, as I said, the last one is share deal versus asset deal. And challenge your lawyers, because I hear, and very often in the market I've seen transactions where the initial lawyer said to the buyer, you need to do a transaction like that. And we ended to do the transaction in a completely different way because not everything had been considered. So challenge yourself on what is the structure of deal that you want to do, because again, at the end of the day, you need to be clear, what do we want to achieve? What is 
the end result that the buyer wants to have, what's the end result that the seller wants to have, or what's the end result that the organization wants to have as a result of the internal reorganization. Thank you, Laurent. Now, I imagine, Mark, from your regulatory perspective, people want an easy ride. They want to have a nice, seamless and smooth uh, sort of transition. Uh, what are some of the considerations when they're trying to choose between the share deal and the asset deal? Yes, I think also from a regulatory perspective, um, these transactions are, are fundamentally different. And, and so I would say if in the merger uh, or in the share deal, you would um, dance, a, let's say, a tango um, in an asset deal, it's an entirely different dance also uh, with the regulator. And so um, let's say on the share deal, um, as Laurent explained, you are selling an entity. Um, the clients remain within that entity. You sell just the entire uh, entity, the entire company. That means that what is changing is essentially the shareholder. There will be a new shareholder. Maybe you will change the name. Maybe you will um, you know, exchange some managers or board members. But essentially, um, that that's the big change. And so also from a regulatory perspective, uh, let's say the focus will be really be on the regulatory approval of this new shareholder. So that, that I would say is, is really the key focus in a share deal. Now in an asset deal, it's an entirely different story um, because what happens there is actually you take the client out of one entity and uh, transfer it to a different entity. And so for, for the client, the impact is, I would, I would say, more important because the contracting party, the service provider of, of the client changes. And that means, um, as Laurent has already alluded to, uh, we may see how we approach the client to, to get consent. And, and there are also regulatory aspects to this consent because you may also need consent to make sure that you don't have a violation of, for instance, confidentiality or professional secrecy rules. And then you have also numerous information duties. You have because the new service provider obviously will then onboard the client, so the buyer buys this asset, buys these client relationships, and uh, when onboarding these clients, of course, uh, a whole number of information duties uh, will arise. So, so as you know, if you you know open an account with a bank, the bank will give you a full package of information. Well, in an asset deal, it's a bit uh, the same story because um, th there's a whole new uh, service provider that comes into play, and then you have, of course, let's say if it's a wealth management activity, you have information duties on, under MIFID. Uh, if it's a payment business, you have a whole number of information duties under <coughs> PSD2. In all businesses, uh, you have to inform clients how you will uh, process their data. So these are a bit the data protection, JDPR considerations. If it's a bank, you have mandatory information duties on, on deposit protection. You may have information duties on, on the consumer credit rules. So really there, uh, the regulatory focus will be to, to design, let's say, a welcome letter for this client that is very complete and make sure uh, that you comply with all these information duties. Of course, also in an asset deal, you have to be transparent uh, with the regulator. The regulator must be aware they must be informed about the consequences of this asset deal, obviously. But I would say it's less an, an approval procedure in that case, like, like in a share deal. But it's more, of course, an, an, an information exchange. And, and really, the focus is, is on this information. Then, of course, I would say, uh, even though uh, these are different dances, um, you have some commonalities. 
And I would say th there's a common focus, for instance, in, in a due diligence, obviously, you want in both a share deal and an asset deal, make sure that, you know, the client files, you will obtain the KYC information, the, um, let's say, the whole package you are buying is compliant with um, regulatory requirements. Maybe again, a bit more in the share deal, because there you, let's say, buy the entire entity with all the risks that may be in there. So, so maybe an, an increased focus, but nevertheless, I would say due diligence is, is a topic in, in both cases. And, and so indeed we have also from a regulatory perspective uh, some differences but also some common areas that, that uh, you have to take into account. Now you've listed quite a few areas there which require regulatory uh, approval. Uh, at what stage in a deal should somebody contact the regulator? Sure. So I, I think there the earlier the better, I would say. Of course the parties should make sure that when they speak to the regulator I would say uh, they don't violate their, let's say, non-disclosure agreements between themselves, but they should make sure that they can speak to the regulator and they should speak to the regulator very early in the process. So you have, of course, these, uh, in a share deal, for instance, these approval requirements for the new shareholder where you have to file, uh, you know, a, a big complex uh, submission with a lot of information and, and documents. But I would say... This does not prevent you, and in fact, you should already give a heads up uh, to the regulator to make sure your regulator is aware uh, of your project, that they don't learn from it from third parties or, or anybody else. You have to keep uh, the regulator abreast of, um, let's say, your project, which is also, let's say, um, useful because maybe they can give you some insights or some, some elements you know, that are important for them. Uh, so, so, so it's and, and is this both yeah. the acquirer and the company that's being sold? Yes, absolutely. In, and, and in fact, to be complete, um, it, it might even be also the, the, the seller. So, so the seller, the acquirer, the company that is being sold, well, sometimes they are not aware. Uh, <laughs> so um, there, but, but of course, as soon as they are aware, it's also in their interest uh, to, to, let's say, you know, make sure that the regulator is informed because there also may be different teams uh, within the regulators that are involved. Maybe it's a cross-border transaction and you have several uh, regulators that they are involved. Uh, you also have deals, of course, where you don't buy only one entity but several. You know, maybe you buy a bank and it has subsidiaries that are also regulated. So make sure to talk uh, to the right regulators and also to the right teams uh, right from the start. And, and that's a bit an, an, an informal heads-up. I would say then um, what you also can do before submitting this, um, let's say, formal filing where you apply for an approval, what also can be done is a kind of pre-filing. And I think that's, uh, we recommend to do that really, uh, of course, in coordination with the regulator, but where we have a, a really a complex uh, transaction. And uh, as I will explain, you have certain time frames also for the regulator within which they have to decide. And if, let's say, the file is so complex that you have the risk that the regulator will not have enough time to properly assess, and so the regulator may be, you know, if, if they feel they were not able to review it completely, they may feel the need to, let's say, re reject or refuse to not be caught by this mandatory timing, and so to avoid that, uh, it, it's sometimes useful um, to do a pre-filing. So basically you would 
submit a draft with kind of a list of documents you, 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 you want to submit and kind of get the feedback from the regulator to make sure when you formally submit that it matches um, their expectations and that um, the remainder of the process goes smoothly and, and that you can keep uh, with this timeline. I would say after this informal submission, well, you submit um, the official finding essentially, um, then it depends, depending on the type of entity, you have, well, certain uh, mandatory timeframes. It's, uh, for some entities, it's 60 business days, from others, it's, it's three months, so, so it depends also on, on the type of entity. And then you have, of course, a Q&A process with the regulator, you know, they raise questions, you respond, there, there's a back and forth. And potentially they can they can extend delays if they feel that um, this is necessary or they haven't received uh, the necessary f uh, information. And then at the end of that, uh, you get, of course, the decision as such of the regulator. Thank you, Mark. Uh, I'm going to come back to you in a moment for more detail on the interaction with the regulator. But before that... <laughs> This is not a legal advice. Laurent, I've got a quick question for you. Has there been one life lesson that you have learned after being involved with M&As all these years? Well, I've spent a sleepless night answering that question or what I would answer because I have actually two. The first one is you always meet twice in life. That means in a transaction, always be careful that you do not overplay your role, uh, that you always have in mind that you may need the other party. Again, I'm coming back to dancing the dance kind of. In a relationship, you need to be able to do a transaction, means that you can meet twice. Uh, you may have the advantage in one part of the negotiation, the other may have the advantage when it comes to implementing the transaction. And the number of times that I needed the other party to be cooperative with me were, uh, are, are numerous, and if I have not been cooperative the first time, they might not be cooperative the second time. So always keep in mind the dance to dance uh, with two, and it means that you meet more than once in life. The other one is, sorry to add that one, is don't over-lawyer. I've seen a number of transactions where the lawyers have been discussing clauses which only interest the lawyers and not the clients. So be careful about that as well. This is not a legal advice. <laughs> So, Mark, just prior to that, we were discussing the kind of interaction that a client may wish to have with the regulator. Uh, but what's the? let's get into the detail now. What's the, what are the contents of these filings? Sure. I would say, um, I, I will, of course, not describe, I would say, the, the entirety of the content, but maybe a few points of attention, a few maybe items to, to bear in mind uh, and that we see in practice uh, uh, sometimes as, yeah, more items that pop up or... or, or where you should think about it before, let's say, um, engaging in, 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 in these filings. The first is really, um, you know, when you have to validate um, the new shareholder, uh, you have, of course, to describe who this shareholder is. And this shareholder is part, generally, of a larger structure, has its own shareholders and so forth. And the idea of these filings is that you uh, only validate the shareholders that... Um, let's say, exceed a certain threshold of participation. And, and that is usually uh, around 10%. There are other thresholds that, that come into play. 
but but what is important is so 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 usually you would say okay we only look at the main entities we we get the documents for those and, and then we are fine and the smaller ones we we just leave aside well it, it's not necessarily always as easy as that because you have a rule that where uh, several parties are acting in concert uh, so that they are following a common strategy in this type of acquisition, which may be the case uh, for some indirect uh, uh, shareholders, for instance. Uh, so we have seen indeed cases where you have a small entity that holds maybe 2 or 3% in the end of um, the regulated entity, where, where you could think, well, that's really so minor, we can leave it aside. But then because they are acting together according to a common strategy or common management, um, they are considered, nevertheless, to uh, acquire the part that this entire concept um, acquires together. So, in essence, in practice, what that means is that uh, also the smaller entities or the ones that hold less participations can come into the scope of these approvals. So, so that's an important point to, to bear in mind in when you analyze your filings to be done. Um, Another important aspect is, um, you know, you, you don't necessarily need only to, to, to get approved as a new shareholder. Huh? As I mentioned, when you buy uh, an entity, you want to put your own people, uh, for instance, in the board of directors. And um, that you can do in a number of filings already together with um, the shareholder change approval. So, so that you have to bear in mind, you know, you, you want to maybe change people in the board, you want to... Uh, have your own senior executive managers in, in the target. Uh, once you buy it, you may want to change the name. So all of these also require regulatory approvals. And so you need to make sure that in these filings, you cover all aspects uh, properly. And you also need to think about who, who needs to request that. Because, for instance, whilst the acquirer can potentially uh, get the validation of new board members for change of name for instance you typically need uh, a co cooperation with the target so, so that the target helps you request that approval so 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 that's also important in terms of content that you don't forget any aspects uh, for for which you need approval another very practical point is um, that you know the, the regulators of course they want up-to-date documents and uh, since, you know, in complex structures, you need to get a lot of documents, a lot of information, some authorities take some time to deliver some of these documents. Uh, in fact, you, you need to keep in mind that the regulator wants up-to-date documents and so for criminal records and this type of documents, typically it's a three-month uh, validity period. So, you know, um, it doesn't... Um, you know, it's, it's not enough to request them six months in advance or, or something like that because then the documents are no longer up to date. So you need to prepare, but prepare also intelligently to make sure that what you file is still, you know, up to date and, and, and fine with, with the regulator. Um, then um, there are other aspects like the regulators can ask letters of comfort from key shareholders to make sure that they will support uh, the target in case of financial difficulties. Um, these are also aspects, you know, to consider what we can offer, how to phrase such a letter of comfort. Um, so, so there are a whole number of, of aspects linked also to the contents uh, that I would say are important, but, you know, you, you, you not necessarily think about them spontaneously. And you're saying that a lot of these can be included in a pre-filing with the CSSF, or are we going to discover this as we go through the process? 
Well, I think in terms of types of approvals, I, that that's where we come in also as 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 um, advisors, of course, because uh, you know since we do these transactions uh, rather frequently, we can of course point you, you know, what are your intentions in these and these areas. So, so we you can really help you to to not miss uh, these approvals because we we have seen, for instance, transactions where uh, some of the parties forgot that, and then of course when you need really. You know, you are at the end, you want to complete the transaction and then you discover that that um, uh, an approval is missing. Then, of course, it becomes stressful because uh, you have to stress the regulator that they come back quickly and so forth. And, and you know, of course, that uh, causes trouble in, in, in a smooth um, as well as the transaction. So it, it's something where we can really help you uh, make sure that you, you, you don't forget anything. And in, in this context also... Uh, what is important to bear in mind that um, there may be indeed several uh, approvals uh, to be sought and and others are, for instance, uh, I think I mentioned already, change of name, change of board members. Um, but for instance, um, some professionals of the financial sectors or banks may need additional approvals, for instance, to act as a fund depository or as a fund central administration. So we have seen you know, businesses being sold where the receiving entity must then make sure that it has also the necessary approvals, of course, to act uh, as a service provider to the relevant clients. And for instance, if you are a service provider to regulated funds in in certain number of areas, you need to make sure that you have obtained also these approvals in in the process. Right, so it sounds like it's quite a time-sensitive process. Uh, Laurent, from your perspective, what are the other time-sensitive CPs to be considered? Well, the condition precedents, there are a few ones. The, the, the most known one is regarding competition laws, antitrust legislation, and we'll have a podcast with Philippe Emmanuel Parch where we will talk more in detail about it. But then there are other more deal-specific ones. For instance, I said uh, in an asset deal, you pick and choose the assets. In a shared deal, you can't pick and choose, you get it all. Well, that's not quite true. Even if you do a share deal, you may have a carve-out that is being done so certain assets and liabilities are taken out of the company as a condition uh, to it being sold to the other party. And then, of course, with the pandemic, some other nice condition precedents pop up like material adverse change. People are very nervous. The regulatory process takes some time. People are nervous that the stock exchange may change or that the economic situation may change, that the pandemic situation may change, and so that they reserve the right not to close the transaction. So that's what's typically called a material adverse change clause. So these CPs are requiring very often time or have a time sensitivity which needs to be managed. Now, you, you talk about closing there, that's a critical period, but I understand people often sign before closing, and how can they manage that period, the long time between signing and closing? Well, there are a number of techniques to be used to manage uh, that period, and again, what we've seen is, and what Mark has been illustrating, is there may be a complex regulatory process which you want to time. So. Once you know how much time it takes, you'll get down and say, okay, how do I bridge that period? How do I bridge that period is probably by conduct of business rules, meaning you put into your document contractual uh, rules which say how much, for instance, the buyer can interfere in your business. In other words, these are clauses by which you say, I as a seller, I'm still the owner until completion, but I accept to restrict what I do uh, until completion happens, or I accept not to do certain things 
without your consent as a buyer. So I do not enter into certain transactions which exceed a certain threshold. I do not pay out dividends. I do not enter into additional lending facilities. I do not do this. I do not do that. And of course, there is a little bit first tension that pops up because the buying party wants, of course, to make sure that what they buy is what they see at the time of the signing. They, they want to interfere as much as possible into the business, whereas, of course, the seller will say, hey, as long as I haven't sold to you, I will give you a limited right to preserve the asset that you're buying, but at the end of the day, it's still my business. And by the way, we might even be still competitors at the time we are doing all of this, so you shouldn't see all my secrecies. So this conduct of business, what can I do on my own? What can I not do anymore or only with the consent of the buyer are important rules? And of course, also they're jumping the gun issues on the antitrust legislation in the sense that you cannot do as if the transaction had completed for antitrust purposes. And then I'm, I'm pretty happy that we mentioned uh, we come after half through the, the, the podcast only to pricing because a lot of people would have said this is now a lawyer's conversation. They haven't even mentioned that there's consideration to be paid in an M&A transaction. Um, yes, there's consideration to be paid, but two things from a lawyer's perspective. First one is I'm always astonished when I see consideration being already determined at the beginning of the deal without these preliminary analyses having been made. Uh, and why is that? Because first of all, depending on the deal structure you have, it may affect the price. Second thing, how long does it take me to get to that closing? There is value also in that time period and you need to manage it. Um, if you have a deal which says the price is an adjustable price depending on what the situation, financial situation of the company is at closing, of course you may care a little bit less about the period in between. But if you have a so-called lockbox deal, I, meaning a fixed price that doesn't change, then of course as a buyer you're very much interested in keeping the period of time very short. And so in addition to imposing on the seller conduct of business rules, you impose him that he doesn't um, do certain leakage transactions, so he doesn't allow certain payments, certain value to go out of the company, or if he allows that to, do, uh, to happen, then he compensates for that. The typical example is that you uh, pay out a dividend. That's typically where you say that's an anti-leakage provision. I don't want you to pay out profits during the period of time where we are still with the regulator. There may also regulatory capital issues to that. So I don't want you to take value out of the company. That's typically anti-leakage provision, which allow you to get from signing to closing by saying there's no, we lock the value into the company. It cannot go out. That's the anti-leakage provision. And we conduct the business to some extent jointly, at least for the major decisions. And that's how you, you, you breach it. But then there is a certain nervousness that people have because if you buy a business, especially in the financial sector, it's a client-driven business. You have clients, you have customers. You're selling a financial service to somebody. You're actually, what you do in the asset deal or in the share deal is buying very often clients. Uh, and volume is very much a driver in the consolidation. So you want to make sure that the clients you thought to get are still there. And that's where you then have a difficult discussion between the two parties as how much access can there be to clients? What is it that can be done to already secure that the clients feel comfortable with this new buyer who comes along.
under whatever form of deal, and that he will remain a client. And in the financial industry, the termination notice periods in many contracts are very short. It's three months, it's six months, so a client is very free to walk away. So that's the other tension you need to manage. It's to preserve value. The other one is the client relationship. And there, I think the best approach is always to say, well, the best service you can render a client is to talk together to the client, to reassure him, because when he's reassured, when he knows what goes on, he will stay. At the same time, the seller has done what he can to deliver what he has committed to deliver, and the buyer can already start his work of selling his new services to the client. There may be regulatory constraints to that nonetheless. I'm, I'm happy for you to say that communication is important. I work in the communication <laughs> business, so I'm delighted you say we should be communicating more. Sorry, Mark. Yes, and I exactly as Laurent said, it, it's important to preserve the value, to preserve the clients. Of course, uh, you need to, to, to do that, especially in the financial sector, in a manner that um, you don't violate any um, professional secrecy provisions, for instance. So, so you know, you, you may have additional points to consider if, if comparing that to, let's say, an M&A in, in a more standard industry, if you wish. So you, you have the data protection point, you have the professional secrecy point, so you have to organize that properly, make sure, you know, do we have necessary consents, do we have other ways to, to approach the client without exposing ourselves to, to, to violations of these rules. And then there is one other important aspect to, to, to frame the whole thing is a long stop date. It's to really agree, okay, we know that there may be lengthy problem uh, process, sorry, that is a problem. <laughs> That's where the slip came from. Um, when doesn't it make sense to do the transaction anymore? Because in a regulatory process, it may sometimes, for unforeseen reasons, take very, very long, and the transaction doesn't make sense anymore after a certain period of time. So you need to have a cutoff date as well by which you say either we close by then or we walk away and everybody does what he needs to do on his own. Yeah, and that's um, that's a very good point. Now, I, I think what is important uh, for long-stop tape is now less to kind of consider um, the evolutions on, on the regulatory front and, and the fact that in a number of areas it, it can take a long time. There, there are regulators that, that fully use, I would say, the time frame that, that is available to them so I think it's also important to find the right let's say timing for, for this long stock tape and also don't put it don't make it too short otherwise you, you run into trouble with the regulatory process. Uh, now Mark you mentioned banking secrecy are there any other points which could influence um, that the management of this long period between signing and closing from a regulatory perspective? Sure I think this is a period uh, certainly where I think you you, you kind of prepare and submit the regulatory filings, you, you have the Q&A process uh, with the regulator. And another aspect maybe uh, that we can discuss is around preparation of the migration, because of course, uh, well, potentially you may do a share deal where you buy um, an entity with its IT systems, uh, you know, that, that that is fully, I would say, uh, independent and, and, you know, you buy it and, and it works uh, on, on the day you close as previously, but that's often not the reality because uh, often the target, you, you know, for instance, operates on the IT platform of the group of the seller or if you have an asset deal, you need to onboard the clients anyway on, on your own systems. So, and, and this, uh, you know, legally speaking, we may say, well, at that day, uh, the, the contract is being transferred, the business goes over, but there's also an operational reality behind that and to make sure that, you know, they, 
on a certain date it's a client of one entity and next day it's a client of the other entity uh, you know also the data must be loaded into the systems of the acquirer so as to able to service this client I would say seamlessly in the context of the transfer and, and so these types of migration they need to be prepared again you mentioned bank secrecy an important uh, consideration also in that context because uh, you cannot simply you know just drop uh, a whole lot of uh, client data uh, to an acquirer if you know the client has not yet been migrated or at least you need to make sure that relevant consents or other measures are taken that you can do that uh, and then you can also have cooperation i would say <coughs> post closing and prepare that as well so for instance in my example if the target was running on on specific it systems of the sellers group uh, maybe you know in order before you can organize uh, let's say a different it system for for this bank which may be a lengthy process um, you may need to use still the it systems of the seller for a transitional period and so you have kind of a transition period outsourcing uh, you know you still receive services from the sellers group during a certain period and that's also important to to organize it properly make sure that uh, the regulator is comfortable with these arrangements you know usually uh, since it's something very tra transitional and short sometimes you can avoid the outsourcing rules but nevertheless it's you know an, an important point also to plan and and you know consider all, all aspects of, of of these points and, and maybe then yeah f final one or two comments what you can do always is also because we often do cross-border transactions and you know kind of to help facilitate the context between the various regulators it's sometimes appreciated that uh, you know we have five different regulators involved then if you share the contact details you know to tell the regulator you know this is your right contact person at this other regulator these kind of very pra pragmatic small steps uh, are, are appreciated and, and I would say help smoothen overall the process. I mean, this is, we're talking a, a huge and complicated uh, process I, indeed. I mean, Laurent, from your perspective, what added value does it bring to clients having a law firm such as Arendt working with you? Well, it's the difference between dancing the tango on your own and dancing the tango with a coach in the sense that we don't need to forget that some M&A is not something that people do necessarily on a day-to-day -day basis. So uh, they need to, to be guided through what is an M&A transaction, so all the steps we discussed, what is a process uh, that needs to be followed. Um, and in that respect, you do need to do some expectation management in the sense of be realistic. What can we achieve? What can't we achieve? If you dance the tango for the first time, it's probably a different thing than if you're already a professional. So let's be very clear. What, what can you do? What is the process? What are the various steps? And then why do I like the idea about the coach is clients, the buyer and the seller, need to dance together. I'm not part of the dance. I can give the rhythm. And the lawyer is giving a rhythm also in the transaction because he's trying to find or she's trying to find compromises at stages where parties need to come together. Uh, he needs to be very tough when things need to be tough. If the timing is to be respected by both parties, in the process management, well, he needs to impose a certain timing if parties want to achieve a certain result by a given date because it is time sensitive. And 
um, the lawyer also, as a coach, he knows the dance from the beginning to the end. So he knows all the steps and all the problems that can appear. We will discuss a little bit labor law. We will discuss tax issues in the form of VAT. All of these are aspects that need to be dealt with. And the more you anticipate them, the more you know that they are coming, the better you are prepared. And then at the end of the day, you, my role is to help find solutions. I'm not the opponent of anybody. I'm not in a wrestling game. I'm there to make that two parties find a deal which is satisfactory to both parties. And that is very important. But, but isn't it just one side that's paying the fee? You know, I have, uh, my M&A deal is successful if the party that is on the other side of the table contacts me for their next deal. And that's the biggest compliment you can get because that's when they appreciate that somebody has been having the whole deal in his mind. You, the lawyer's role consists in making sure that if the parties want to do a deal, that they do a deal. Sometimes parties need to walk away from each other and negotiations break up. But he's there to make a deal happen. You can be tough at instances, you can be soft at instances. Fees is not the issue. It's to make sure that my client wants to do the deal meet somebody else who wants to do the deal as well. They sometimes have pointed, that's what the lawyers sometimes forget. I, we will talk later about contractual provisions. I have already done transactions where I've granted guarantees for 11 years, where people say, how can you, on behalf of a seller, grant guarantees for 11 years? My client said, the business is clean, Laurent. There's nothing in it. He's accepting to pay me 5% more in purchase price. Come on, let's give him what he wants. I have no concern being exposed for 11 years because the price is just better. Hey, that's the type of thing where you need to be knowing that these things can happen and be fighting for the right thing in, in the transaction. And that's what the law firm brings because we, we always remain the coach. We are there to coach our client in the transaction. This is not a legal advice. Mark, a quick question for you. What should we not be afraid of in an M&A transaction? So I think Laurent has said um, M&A is like a tango. And I would say, you know, don't be shy. You know, dance with all parties. Be sure to involve with everyone from the start. And, and, and so what, what does it mean? I think be transparent with the regulator. Involve the regulator early. Uh, don't be afraid to, to collaborate also with, your, with the other party. I think you, you need the other party to make sure that your regulatory filings have the right contents. You need to collaborate with them for smooth um, transition, for smooth uh, migration of the business. Uh, and, and as Laurent said, also don't be shy to, to compromise. I think uh, in, in an M&A deal, I think what we want is to get the deal done you have to choose your battles, make sure to, to find the right um, points uh, that are important and to be tough on. But, you know, don't be shy also to, to compromise on certain points because uh, what we want is, is not uh, three months of negotiations on small points and, and you know, everyone is fr gets frustrated and angry, but, but we want to make progress in such a deal. This is not a legal advice. <laughs> So, Laurent, let's get down to the nitty-gritty. What steps can be taken to properly prepare for a deal? Well, 
I wish now to approach uh, certain aspects of the contract and to, to go through whatever contract it is, be it a business combination agreement in the case of a merger where people come together and stay together or a, a, a share deal, a transfer deal in, in a business deal. Uh, I want to focus on three or four aspects only. I mean, the contracts uh, and lawyers are known for it. They are not only getting fees by the hour, but also by the kilogram of documentation they can produce. But I want to focus on, on three or four aspects. One aspect I want to focus on is, of course, representations and warranties versus indemnities. So again, we are doing a deal, we are buying something, we are representing it to be in a certain state. And of course, the buyer says, well, can you guarantee that things are like they are, everything is in order, I'm not buying a problematic business, I'm buying a clean business. The seller is, of course, saying yes. But today's world is such that I want to see the seller who is absolutely clean, who has no problems, who has not contravened one or the other regulation or has had one or the other problem. There it is important, as Mark has been said, don't be shy. Just say, yes, there are these and these are the uh, addressed issues and we need to address them and we are ready to give an indemnity so to keep you harmless as a buyer against this uh, type of events that have occurred because they, everybody has these types of events. So it's this type of openness and frankness that we need to have. Now, what I see in the market, however, more and more now also in the financial sector and in Luxembourg is that insurance is taken for representations and warranties or indemnities in the sense that people before it was very simple. The seller had to put a certain amount of money aside, put it into escrow until all the indemnities were run out and guarantees were running out of time and then uh, the, 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 the deal was done. Nowadays parties want to move on much more quickly. And the insurance sector is developing such that they do provide you insurance for the reps and warranties so that no party uh, has itself exposure, it's the insurance that bears the risk. However, and that's where preparation is all, if you go for insurance, you need to do that at the beginning of the deal and not at the end of the deal. So here again it is, what's the lawyer's contribution proposing to your insurance because that's a new trend. It becomes or it comes at prices which are more acceptable. And rather than just go the classical reps and warranties route or indemnities route, let's just insure it. Let's discuss about it. Who bears the cost? And is this not a better solution and products on the market? So that's the first contractual aspect I wanted to take, talk about. The second one is litigation. Um, in in, in in a financial sector business, you may have litigation or certain issues with uh, employees or with clients. And here again, I come into that theme of clients. If I have litigation with a client, then be sure that your interests are going to diverge very quickly. Why? The seller has had the issue with the client. There is a litigation that goes on. The buyer takes it over. The buyer wants to stop as soon as possible maybe the litigation with the client because it's still a client. It's a client who is unhappy as long as the litigation goes on. If it is a strategic client or an important client, he wants that litigation to stop as soon as possible. And he doesn't have to suffer the consequences because if litigation has been identified, he probably has either insurance or representation or an indemnity which makes that he will be indemnified. The seller is in a completely different situation. It's an ex-client. He doesn't have that client anymore, and if he loses the litigation, then he will have to pay and indemnify for that litigation. So the conflict of interest is a little bit there. Parties do very often not care about this conduct of litigation 
rules that apply after the deal because that is seen as lawyer's language. Well, it isn't because it can go to the core of your business with clients being very unhappy if litigation continues simply because the seller has an interest to do so under representations and warranties. The third aspect I want to deal with is the post-completion. There is a life, as I said, after the deal. You always meet twice in life in the sense that there is integrations that happen uh, after the deal has been done. And there it is very important that the buyer is very clear in his mind how he wants to integrate the business that he's been integrate, has, that he has been buying, sorry, how he is integrating that business into his business. Let's take a share deal. A buyer who is already active in the domiciliation industry buys another company who is active in the domiciliation industry. Now he has two companies being active in the domiciliation industry. Normally he wants to merge the two. That's the normal thing to do because you probably don't want to have two companies to run. But that may not be so easy as that because you want to say, well, if I do that, I do mingle the assets and liabilities of both companies, the exposure of both companies. Do I want to do that or not? Then there may be also that there is an old relationship that the seller still has with his old clients and he wants to have access to information and documentation. So there's a whole thing after the transaction has been done where the parties remain linked to each other and where it is very important that you create the framework for cooperation. We will see the non-solicit, non-compete clauses with uh, Philippe Emmanuel Parch. But still, the parties need to live together. And I think this preparing also the after-deal life is a very important thing from a contractual uh, perspective as to what you want to achieve above and beyond the classical non-solicit, don't come back to my business type uh, clauses that are around uh, there. So I think from, uh, from to be very short and, and conscious of time, I think these, these are, from the contractual framework, the most important one. Maybe a last one, again, is price. Um, Why do the lawyers speak less about price? It's because very often the financial advisors do that. We we can help, of course, as well. Um, The only element I want to repeat is that the financial pricing, in my view, is also something that should be re-looked at once all the aspects we have been discussing have been looked at. Because in all the clauses that we've been discussing, there's economic, there's financial value. And I think it is very important that, again, to need to do the deal, we need to make sure that the price is only a component of an overall equilibrium that, have, that we have in a transaction. Yes, and, and these are excellent points. And I think what's also important to bear in mind is, is maybe that, you know, this contract, uh, you should also have your, your tax specialist, the competition law specialist, as Laurent said, uh, the regulatory expert um, have a look at, at, at the SBA in the end because indeed you, you have a number of uh, conditions precedent or, or clauses. You, how, how do you treat employees? How, how do you treat certain tax liabilities that are important uh, to, to be covered? And so make sure you have a right complete team that can cover all these aspects and, and integrate them properly in your documentation because, for instance, uh, it, it's very common that regulator will want to have a copy of the SBA and, and so you should make sure that uh, you have taken into account all, all of these aspects. Now, as we move towards the end of uh, this, in the fourth series of the Arendt We Are Live podcasts, um, if I had to take you back again, uh, Laurent, if you, if you had to make one key point, what is your one key takeaway for this session for people tuning in today? 
go with your lawyer through what you want. Explain to him what you want and allow sufficient time for everybody to prepare to devise a strategy of how you get to what you want. And it's this objective. And only focus on your real objectives that you really must have. The must-haves, not the nice-to-haves. That's important for the lawyer to know because that helps manage the transaction in a very efficient way and prepare it accordingly. Uh, and Mark, what is your key takeaway? I would say I have three takeaways from, from a regulatory perspective. The first is really prepare well and prepare in advance because the timings, uh, the filings are complex and take a lot of time. So make sure to kick them off early. The second takeaway is pay attention to the details. The devil may very often be in the details because you need five or six uh, approvals potentially in certain transactions. So make sure that you don't miss any of those. And finally, the third one being, if you need several approvals, make sure to kick them off in parallel so uh, that you manage timing in the most efficient way. That was Laurent Schumer and Marc Mouton. We are here just at the end of the Arendt We Are Live podcast number four. Make sure that you tune in for the subsequent podcasts on MA that you can also find on paperjam.lu. Mm-hmm.